Sego, and welcome to Resistance Radio. I am John Kane, and uh, I am happy to be here and happy to be talking to you. Um, I've got a guest joining me this week, and I will introduce him shortly. But uh, you know, first, let me do some of the business. Uh, we are listener-supported radio, and we count on your contributions to keep this radio station, I should say these radio stations, since we are broadcasting on both WBAI and on WPFW, uh, New York and Washington, D.C., so we rely on your contributions to these stations um, and whatever affiliates happen to carry the show. And there's a couple that do um, to, you know, to not just keep my show on the air, but to keep the, the stations on the air. So um, I ask you to go to the pledge line. If you're listening in New York City, then I ask you to go to two, um, 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or go online to give to WBAI.org and make a contribution of any size. I mean, do what you can. Do what you can. And you know what? Do it when you can. Look, if, if you anticipate that you will you know, be, uh, be a little bit more liquid you know, down the road, then, then make a timed, uh, a timed payment. If you can do a small contribution on a, on a, on a weekly or a monthly basis, by all means, then, then do what you can. And, you know, then you if you become a WBAI buddy, then then we can count on it. And once you you've committed to uh, accessing your credit card or checking account information and make a monthly donation, then we know we got you. And we know that we we've got uh, that income coming in that we can we can, you know, uh, budget in. Uh, if you're in Washington, D.C., then I ask that you go to their pledge line and go to WPFW's pledge line. That's 202-588-9739 or go online to WPFWFM.org and follow the prompts for a donation. Same thing goes. One-time donation, a time donation, uh, be, become a sustaining member of the station and, uh, and do what you can do to keep these these fine stations. And look, what's, what for us as you know, providing a native voice in markets like New York and Washington, they could not be more important. Look, we, we, have, we have ongoing battles with the state of New York. And we know, in spite of the, the capital being in Albany, the centers of power of the state rest more, more directly in uh, downstate in the, in the New York City area. So we, we need not just the listening audience, but hopefully the listening audience that can access some of the powers that be in New York City. Same thing goes for Washington, D.C. There's no question that the powers that be in Washington, D.C. Uh, are, are the ones that we're trying to reach out to. And if we can't reach out to them directly, we hope that we can reach the listening audience who you know, perhaps you know somebody, perhaps you are in, engaged in some way to some of those those folks who are the decision makers and who are the policy makers. And, you know, those are the ones we, we need to influence. We need allies. We need accomplices, as we say. But we also need to share the information. That's why I do this show, Resistance Radio, which is really more tailored towards the non-native listening audience. And, you know, although, look, I obviously I encourage native people to listen to the, to the program. And then I do my podcast, which is Let's Talk Native. And that is geared more towards uh, native, uh, native listenership. But again, I encourage non-native people to listen to that conversation as well, or those conversations. We, you know, we, we not only address native issues directly, but we also address... The issues that impact us and impact everybody, but offer a native perspective to the 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 issues that impact us all. And you know, so whether we're talking about climate change or environmental protections or government overreach, oppression, you know, social justice, 
you know, look, many of these issues are not just Native issues. We feel it oftentimes in a different way, and oftentimes in a way that, that most people are, are simply unaware of. I mean, the, the history, our history, which only, you know, dovetails with American history for a couple of hundred years. Our history goes back way farther than that. But our history is oftentimes really just a, a difference of perspective on what the United States has done what European colonists have done, so that's why it's so important that that you hear this perspective. Even look, even if you don't necessarily agree with everything that I say here or my guests say here, look, that's understandable. You may be hearing some of these perspectives for the fir- the very first time, but it's just important that you know that these perspectives exist, and you know it may take a time for some of these these thoughts or these opinions or these facts to settle in on you. But know that that if you hear something that you are perhaps unaware of, you know, in, being introduced to for the very first time, search it. Look, we all have Google, we all have, you know, have the the means to to look up information of I've said it all along. If you hear me say something that somehow conflicts with your worldview or your understanding, don't take my word for it. Don't just change on my word. But Research it. See what you can find out and see what, what you learn about the subject matter, because I think that's what's what's so important is that you may hear something that you never heard before. And the, and the problem is, while much of this information is available and so there, there's answers to questions, but if you don't know those questions. So allow me to allow yourselves to question what you've been taught to question what you know, to question what you think you know. And then when you research your answers, you may find that some of my responses to those questions are accurate. You may still question it, but but at least you will know that by hearing a perspective from, from a Native person or Native people, you're going, to, you're going to find out that perhaps the way that you've been taught, perhaps what you've been taught, is not been entirely accurate. And we're probably going to nail some of that down today. So my guest today, and first off, Reggie, do we have uh, um, uh, Leon available? Yes, we do. All right. Well, well, let me introduce then. My guest is Leon Sue, And if you've listened to this program for any length of time, Leon has been a part of this program several times. We, we've done several shows together. Uh, of course, since COVID, I have not been back to New York. And ironically, Leon got a hold of me and said, hey, I'm in New York. Want to do a show? And I'm saying, sure, but you're going to be in New York and I won't be. I'll be in uh, Seneca territory. So let me introduce my my friend, uh, Leon Su, who is um, who has served. And, and you'll have to correct me if, if anything has changed since it's been so long since you, we've been together here. You have served as the foreign minister for the um, – and I want to get this right. And correct me if I get one – is it Hawaiian Kingdom or the Kingdom of Hawaii? Did I lose you? All right, I'm going to try again. Oh, okay. All right, well, maybe he's, he just slipped off. All right, well, we, we will go back to that question because I, I've heard a little bit of a debate about there being a distinction between referring to the Hawaiian Kingdom as opposed to the Kingdom of Hawaii. So, And, and I don't know that either one is wrong, but I've heard there's, there's, there's at least a, a perhaps a context that needs to be considered. And so as I'm talking about this stuff, let me, let me just say, so you know, when the United States claimed to have annexed Hawaii, it was a fraudulent um, action. It, it, was, it was an occupation. It was not a legal annexation of a sovereign nation that somehow had requested to, to become a part of the United States. 
there was essentially a, a, a bloodless, or, or somewhat bloodless anyway, or, or coup by a bunch of white folks who lived in Hawaii who decided they didn't want to live under the okay, Hawaiian Okay, let's kingdom. try again. All right. Well, I, I, well just, just because I'm, I'm recapping here. And because the, there was, the, there was these, these wealthy, mostly sugar plantation owners and wealthy white men who lived in Hawaii who did not, they wanted to essentially do away with, abandon, you know, uh, abolish the, 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 the crown, if you will, the, the kingdom of Hawaii, and reassert themselves as the Republic of Hawaii for the sole purpose of giving over what they now claimed was their country to the United States. It was never legal. There was never an annexation treaty. There was never any of that stuff. And that's what we've talked so much about with, uh, with Leon on, on the program. So, Leon, uh, first off, correct me. Is, is, the, is there a distinction between referring to the Hawaiian kingdom as opposed to the uh, kingdom of Hawaii? No, technically not. But aloha, everybody. Good to be here. And good to hear you again, John. Um, I really um, missed your program or missed being on your program. But um, I've been listening to it now and then, and so thank you for maintaining, you know, that watchman on the wall. Well, and, and, uh, and again, I know you don't catch the show all the time, but I have to tell you, and Reggie will back me up on this, there is almost no occasion that I don't somehow introduce the, the conversation about the, the battle to, to reassert the Hawaiian kingdom, the, the illegal occupation, the false annexation, all of that stuff. And, and look, even yeah. when Russia had gone into Crimea, I, you know, I, the point that uh-huh. I was making, and I wasn't validating what Russia was doing, but, but what I was really trying to say is, look, the United States, as you're condemning Russia— Perhaps you should take a little ownership to your own illegal annexation of lands and and point to that a little bit. And of course, they, they wouldn't and they right. and they don't. But you know, and I wasn't justifying right. Russia's actions in in Crimea or the current action in, in the Ukraine. But but there is yeah. a strong sense of the pot calling the kettle black here. Oh, absolutely. But of course, you know what we're looking at is is a, a difference in time or in in a in the period of time. Back then, I mean, fake news in America in, in the, at the beginning of the 19th of the 20th century and end of the 19th century, I mean, fake news was so rampant, there was nobody saying anything else, you know. So whatever uh, the yellow journalists needed to, wanted to say, they got away with it. You have William Randolph Hearst, who, yes. uh, who was a, a staunch imperialist. So clearly anything yeah, that he yeah. could do to deride or in any way you know, diminish um, not just the intellect, intellectual capacity, but the, but the, you know, the civilized nature or, or anything of, of indigenous people. And clearly some of the stuff that ran in his publications regarding uh, Hawaii was, was just, just absolutely yes. absurd and abhorrent. It was terrible. Yes. Yes. But they got away with it. Sure. That was, that was the key because if, since they got away with it, now this was the United States first expansion beyond its own shores, you know, um, actual expansion into Hawaii. And when they got away with it, what they did was this emboldened them, emboldened them to really adopt this manifest destiny thing, that they had every right given by God to interfere into the affairs of any other nation they wanted to. So right after Hawaii, of course, interfered in with the Philippines and took over the Philippines, 
uh, not to mention Cuba and and every place else. Guam, all, yeah, all of it. But but I mean, to to your point though, I mean, let's be clear: their yeah. manifest destiny was established in the uh, in the illegal occupation of native lands in on the continent, and it, it was when they exactly. expanded beyond that. And and frankly, I think anybody who thinks about what Hawaii went through and what the Hawaiian people went through. They have to consider that that the Hawaiian people were were extremely aware of the violence and the atrocities that the United States had committed against uh, Native people, you know, in, in, on the continent, and and frankly, what was happening in other parts of the world. So, it you know, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. And you know, so when I hear people say, "Well, it, it doesn't seem like there was uh, there was much resistance," well, there was plenty of resistance. Oh. But let's be clear that that. The the Hawaiian people and and your your queen Lila Kalani was was keenly aware of the potential for for massive violence against the Hawaiian people. Yes, absolutely, and 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 the United States would not have blinked at it. But they would have relished doing that. No, I mean they they had a track record already. Right, and she didn't give them the satisfaction of you know going to war against uh, this our nation. A peaceful and people, for the most away. part, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and what bore that out was, you know, a few years later when the U.S. waded into the Philippines uh, to quell the liberation movement there, and, and there they slaughtered. I mean, the massacre in the Philippines was un- unbelievable. There were at least a quarter of a million and some say a half a million Filipino uh, civilians who died in that war. And, um, you know, the U.S. lost uh, was less than 5,000 soldiers, but that was still a significant amount. But those soldiers were the ones that were trained during the Indian Wars, you know. Yeah. And so they were, they were recruited and sent off to the Philippines to do the same thing there. Uh, and so, you know, we really, Hawaii dodged the bullet due to the wisdom of, of our queen. Well, and, and you lived and you live to fight today, you know, and, and, the, and the issue yeah. is that, you know, so much of this stuff is mischaracterized. I mean, look, there's a there's a book called True Flag by Stephen Kinzer that addresses American yeah. imperialism. And and there's a line in that book. And, and I was listening on to an NPR station with an interview and I actually called in. I mean, there's a line in that book that said American troops found themselves for the first time firing upon people fighting for their independence. And I'm thinking. What the hell? I mean, what do you think Native people were fighting for? Do you think we were? we're I mean, we were fighting for our independence yeah. for for two hundred years before that, and and it made it sound yeah. like that somehow that American troops found themselves somehow on the other side of morality in the Philippines when they had been doing this for hundreds of years, and and certainly in the last hundred yeah. years, dramatic right. violence against against Native people. So, I mean, so even when people are trying to tell the story about imperialism, they, you know, especially when it's a white guy writing it, they have a tendency, and, and I'm sorry, white folks listening, but <laughs> but there's a tendency yeah. to to be devoid of the perspective of uh, of the of, of Native people or the indigenous people. I mean, so when when I heard that line read in the in the book, I mean, I could not believe what what I was hearing. And when I challenged, the, you know, the um, that you know what the host of the show and 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 I don't know which it was, anyway, it was one of the one of the NPR hosts. They said, "Yeah, we understand that, but we only had a limited amount of time." So you had a limited amount of time, uh, and you kept you decided to to use let that racist statement be you know be a part of the narrative. 
uh, you know, on the, you know, the killing of Filipinos. I mean, it's, it's that was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Leo, please, Leon, please give me an update. We haven't talked in a while and, and we've got a number okay. of subjects that we talk about. But but I know that you and, and um, you know, Keanu Sai and so many others have been really busy, especially in the international community, trying to raise awareness. Because one of the things that everybody have to, has to realize is that, you know, the illegal occupation of, of Hawaii wasn't just an offense by the United States. There was complicity by by other nations that had clearly recognized the sovereignty of the Hawaiian kingdom and looked the other way. You know, so when I think about all of the the um, the consulates that 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 existed throughout Europe for the Hawaiian kingdom yes. and all of those nations that re, you know that recognized the sovereignty of uh, of the Hawaiian kingdom looked the other way when when the United States uh, did what they did. So, I mean, what how much um headway are you making in you know, not only confronting that but but just trying to, you know, put the facts out there. Yes. Well, actually we're making very very good headway. Um Counter-Sai, as you know, has been uh raising the issues from a legal standpoint and has been very successful in educating not only um, uh, people, but he's been educating the legal community about it. So there are several large, uh, the ILG, the International, uh, or IALG, I think it's called, International Association of Legal um, something or other. Anyway, but uh, they're a fairly large organization uh, based in Europe, and they have actually uh, sent several uh, communications to the state of Hawaii and to the United States, uh, saying that in, in their examination of the situation, Hawaii, Hawaii is under unlawful occupation. Um, also, there's an American organization that has done the same, and both of them have entered into um, uh, or uh, become partners within some of the lawsuits that Keanu Sai has filed. Now, Keanu Sai, for the listeners, is, is, has been representing the Hawaiian Kingdom um, as it's uh, a representative from the Council of Regents. And, and as such, he's been uh, really plowing up the, the legal area. The problem, and I've been working in the diplomatic area. So I, I tell people what we're, we're doing is we're working both sides. The legal area tends to be adversarial. I mean, it has to be because you're challenging somebody else over a legal point. But in the diplomatic uh, side, you're actually trying to make friends. You're trying to persuade people in a friendly manner to see your point of view. And so I've been very successful in, in that because I'm not trying to, I don't make enemies, I'm trying to make friends. And uh, so I spent a lot of time, I have spent a lot of time in Geneva and in New York and in Vienna and in Brussels and other places, really just meeting with people to make friends and tell them our story. And this has been very, very successful over the years. It's taken a long time. When I first started out, people used to say, oh, wow, that's a very sad story. We're really sorry for you. We wish you the best of luck, you know, in, in free in Hawaii. And then a few years later, as it continued, and I saw these people again, and they, their interest got peaked, and they saw we were still persisting, uh, they started to say, do you really think that can happen? Do you think the United States will let you, will let you go? And so that's a whole different way of saying, oh, we wish you all the luck. And then they became curious as to whether or not the United States would actually, or we could actually succeed. 
And then a few years later ago, about maybe three or four years ago, they began to say, how do you think we can help? You know, in a, in a cautious way, because, of course, they, they don't want to put themselves at risk um, of retaliation from the United States. But they did start to ask, how do you think we could help? So now we've got a conversation going in which uh, we can actually propose some things that they can do. So this is what we have been looking for, and this is what we've been working on. COVID sort of interrupted us and put a two-year hiatus on our efforts, but we're now back again, and we're pursuing this idea of how they can help. And we've come up with actually a strategy, a specific strategy that we vetted with many of the countries that we've been talking with, and they say, you know, that looks like something safe we can do, and, and yet that can still get you the results you need. And so um, I can describe it to you. Well, yeah, because I am, I am curious because, you know, one of the things that always happens when Native people, Indigenous people, however you want to describe the original people of a land, anytime we try to assert a land claim or, in, in your case, you know, not just an illegal occupation but a coup against your government the whole bit, you know, one of, the, one of the immediate thoughts that comes to mind for most non-Native people is, oh, we're going we're gonna to remove everybody from our lands. You know, we're, going, we're, trying to, we're trying to grab all of our land back and we're going to make everybody leave. And, you know, even f- from, from a standpoint where, where I live, most of the time when we're talking about land back or we're talking about land claims, it's, it's really about title to land. It's really about, um, you know, having say over it and having control over it and that kind of yeah. thing. Now, clearly, Hawaii is a very occupied um, uh, uh, place. I mean, there's a, a strong military presence mm-hmm. there. Um, there is a, a, a tourism industry. And those things dominate um, the, all of the lives of, of you know, the Ganakamali, the, the original Hawaiian people, but it, it dominates the state mm-hmm. so, uh, or the, the place. I don't want to call it a state because even that's, that's probably problematic. Yeah, the country. The country. country. But so, I mean, where did, I mean, I always assumed that there was probably some place where some leases and, and, and got that kind of thing, but, but, the, but the title of the, of the land returns, and you, and you actually do have lands that, that, are un, that are clearly unseated, that are considered crown lands. So there's a number of steps along the way. So where does your strategy lie at this point in terms of not only asserting the, uh, the Hawaiian kingdom and reasserting the Hawaiian kingdom, I guess, but is there, is there I mean, is, is it about undoing statehood is it about um i mean where where do you see the strategy i guess yes okay yes it is about undoing statehood um mainly because what you know again we have this difference between a legal question and a political question and uh so the questions about land titles those are legal questions but what's happened is in over the years and uh particularly with a, a few uh, main, uh, 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 how would you say, um, uh, uh, actions that the United States took. There was, first of all, the overthrow, secondly, the fake annexation, and then third, the fake statehood. But on all of these, what happened in the third, the fake statehood, was that the United States implied or, or gave the impression and that that the people had determined, the Hawaiian people, had determined to join the United States as a state. 
and had given their consent, thereby erasing all of the other wrongdoings that happened before because at this point, you know, United, uh, Hawaii requested to become married to the United States. So um, that's, that's the story that the United States sold, and that's what the world bought. And in that, in, by doing so, the United Nations adopted a resolution in 1959 that accepted the United States report that Hawaii had consented to become part of the United States. And in doing so, the, um, the United Nations then considered the question of the political status of Hawaii, whether it was an independence or a state or uh, whatever else, um, had been settled that, that we're not independent, we're a part of the United States. And that's where we're stuck right now, or we got stuck, because there was a legal act or a political action taken, the vote, that created a legal circumstance, which is that Hawaii's um, uh, political status is now settled within legal terms. Well, and so I think it's, 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 it's worth pointing out, though, in 1959 that the U.N. was yes. very active in the independence, you know, in decolonization through yes. other parts of the world. So um, the fact that the United States was misrepresenting, uh, if not completing, uh, committing outright fraud in much of their claims before the United Nations, th that creates this essentially closing the case on Hawaii is, is kind of interesting. Yes. So, so where does that leave you in terms of trying to open that? Okay. So uh, anyway, let me go about the closing the case, because you notice the United States only closed the case on two territories, Alaska and Hawaii, in 1959. But Guam and Puerto Rico and American Samoa and uh, U.S. Virgin Islands are still in a, in a decolonization phase. They're still on the list of non-self-governing territories to be decolonized. Anyway, so, so where that leads us today is that we say that the, the, there was not consent given that the, the plebiscite that they conducted at that time was fraudulent, but they reported to the United Nations as if there was a free, prior, and informed consent given by the people, and, and therefore the United Nations adopted Resolution 1469 saying that the case is settled. Hawaii is now part of the United States. However, uh, because they made that decision based on fraudulent information by the United States, uh, we believe the case can be reopened. And so the way that we can do that is not necessarily challenge the United States. Keanu Sai is doing that in the courts and all that. But he's been unsuccessful because the courts say the political question has been settled. And, but he, can, he needs to continue doing that because they need to continue saying that. Because if they say the political question has been settled, then what we need to show is the pol political question is not settled. Right. And the way we do that is by, uh, is by conducting a, or convincing the U.N. General Assembly to conduct a review of their own action that they took, uh, their, their own specific um, resolution that they passed conduct a review to see whether or not they followed proper procedures. And the proper procedure would have been to validate whether or not there really was an election, a true election, or a vote. And, and what they're going to do, if they, if they conduct this review, is that they will, it will reveal the United States uh, misinformation or outright lies 
that they told the United Nations, which caused the United Nations to adopt this resolution. So if the United Nations undertook a review and found out what really happened, then they're the culprits and they have to make something, they have to rescind their resolution and say, we made a mistake, we need to correct this mistake. And by doing so, they withdraw their own um, uh, validation of the United States claim that the Hawaiian people had consented. And knowing now, what we didn't know in 1959, but we know now of all of the, the wrongdoing that happened leading up to statehood, knowing now that, that what happens is that the United States claim uh, is invalidated. And by default, the Hawaiian kingdom springs back forward because the Hawaiian kingdom's claim would be the only valid one if, if the United States claim is not, is not valid anymore. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that it switches the whole thing in this one action of, of reviewing the, uh, the resolution of 1959. So again, by you, no, by, by challenging or, or asking the, the UN, you're not actually going after the United States. You're going after a UN process to and, and really asking That's them right. to do what they should have done, which is to uh, yes. to do the proper review. And and again, this kind of shows the um, the tremendous influence that the United States had, um, you know, and still has over the United Nations. The fact that that they yeah. managed to pull stuff, you know you know, pull the wool over the eyes of, of other nations. And, you know, you get this whole, well, we're the good guys. You can trust us. And, and when you, when you look at the whole thing, I mean, like there's a lot of things the United States has done that they've never been called out for. And, and this is one of them. I mean, it's still, you know, it's, it changes not only, you know, your, your legal arguments when, when the political question is no longer a settled issue, it, it opens it up for you to have the, the legal questions uh, re- reopened again. Yes. And, and, of course, what we're doing is we're talking about the General Assembly. And where, when they started out, the General Assembly had 51 countries in 1945, 1946. Now there are 193. And so what, what existed back in 1946 or 1959 was a predominantly colonial uh, body. Now you're looking at many, many countries that have been freed from their colonial past, and they're all now sovereign, independent states functioning as full members of the Hawaiian of the United Nations. Therefore, we're going to have a lot of friends. We do have a lot of friends, and and they can relate to they can relate to your history specifically. Yeah, exactly, because they've gone through all kinds of struggles and you know to to win their independence. Mm -hmm. So. So we, we're no longer dealing with the same body that passed the resolution in 1959. Now we're dealing with 140 nations that weren't in the UN at that time. <laughs> hmm. So it, the, the numbers are way on our side. All we need to do is ask the question and get a review started, and everything will swing in our direction. And then what we will do, of course, is be magnanimous and offer the United States a peace treaty and a a settlement and and a a graceful way in which they can withdraw. But now it's under the aegis of the United Nations. I mean, we'll we'll call the United Nations to oversee the whole uh, shebang. Mm -hmm. And as corrupt as some parts of the United Nations are, 
uh, when we look at, at the numbers of countries uh, in the General Assembly, then, then we're looking at, at basically a fair format, a fair forum to, to negotiate our peace treaty. And, 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 and of course, and look, without, without trying to you know, sound you know, pessimistic about it, you know, it is still obviously quite a challenge because to get the United Nations, even the General sure. Assembly, to uh, you know, adopt any action, even a, even a review that, that challenges the United States, that's, that's a pretty good hill to climb. And, and I think you guys have made a tremendous case for that. And while there may be, uh -huh. you, you may have strong allies uh, in, uh, in and amongst that, that um, General Assembly, you know, it's obviously it's still a pretty good undertaking. And, and Native people, including, you know, people who have tried to, you know, push for the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and, and, and that kind of thing, we have, we have run into roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. And I realize that my, many of our issues yeah. are different than yours. You, you have some really specific and concrete um, arguments to make about, you know, not only mistakes made by the United Nations, uh, but, but clearly— you know, fraud committed by the United States. I mean, going, I mean, you know, to, to revisit even the claim to annexation, we know that the United States violated their own constitution with their claim to annex by using a joint resolution of Congress rather than a, uh, a negotiated treaty with, con with consent yeah. by two thirds of the Senate. They, they actually violated yeah. their law to do, to, to make, to even take that first step or second step, I should say. That's right. Yes. So, but I, I'm very confident that we actually can do this, mainly because, again, we're not directly confronting the United States, even though the United States will see through it, they'll see that that, that will happen. But if you look at what uh, the resolution is saying, that we want to review Resolution 1469 um, to see if, there, if it was procedurally correct. That's all it's asking. Right, right. <laughs> Well, and, and I think what pe a lot of people don't realize, and that's why I, I'm always glad to have you or, you know, uh, or, or Keanu or anybody else, you know, talk about this. You know, Hawaii has become a place that has been very difficult for Hawaii, the Hawaiian people to maintain uh, residency in. And, and by some accounts, you know, as many as 70 to 75 percent of the Hawaiian people no longer can afford to live in Hawaii. Because of right. you know what tourism and and the military has done to the housing market and the cost of everything else and other U.S. policies and even many of the Hawaiian people who do live there are living uh, you know there's uh, there's homeless and there's uh, it's uh, they're living in poverty I mean it's it's really a a really horrendous situation. Yes, yeah, and um, and so yeah that drastically needs to change. And this is what, what we're seeing is, or saying is that the issue is not just a political issue or an, an, uh, you know, a historic issue. This is really life. Our lives depend on whether or not we actually can control our own lands and our own resources, feed ourselves, protect ourselves, secure our, our, our lands, because if we don't, then the United States continues to to sell it off or to uh, use it and and abuse it in the ways that they've been doing for years and years. So this needs to stop. So it's not simply a matter of who's going to be the government. It really is a matter of who's going to be in charge. 
Yeah. And 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 whether or not the people are are going to make the decisions or some bureaucrats in Washington D.C. Yeah. Well, and and one of the other things that that many Europeans and uh, people of European descent don't quite you know, um, grab onto is that that uh, a people who who are tied to the land, you know that that um, that becomes part of our identity. You know, and and a and a big oh. part of it. You know, for for us Deeply, in, yeah. in in the Mohawk language, our word for um, for a native person is ungwe ungwe, and what it means is not just an original person, but a, a, by original we mean that they are tied to the land, and that and that that mm -hmm. connection is forever. It's it, forever in both directions. But if you are, a, yeah. you know, if you're a country born out of imperialism, out of colonialism, then your yeah. ties to the land are are usually tied to to the money that that land can produce, not tied to the right. to the history and to the the legacy of of your people in that land. You don't have yeah. the names of the places on that land um, are mean something different to us than it does to them. And so, I mean, yeah. our very identity, and, and so when we talk about things like genocide, if you strip away a major portion of a people's identity in, in the form of, of, you know, relocating them, and let's face it, for all intents and purposes, when you talk about 70% of, 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 the, of the, the real Hawaiian people who have been forced to leave, that is a form of dispossession and, and relocation. It's, it's not, in many ways, it's not any different than, than the trails of tears and, and the kind of thing that Native people experience here. It may have manifested Very a little much. differently, but it's the same effect. Yeah. yeah, we're forced out. Yep. Forced out of our homeland, yeah. And, and made to live somewhere else that's strange and, and to survive somehow in that, that area. But Hawaiians are resilient, and we're most Hawaiians are ready to move back when conditions get better. Right. And um, so we're, we're looking forward to that. My, in fact, after I'm through here this week, I go to visit my son who had to move away from Hawaii. He's in Los Angeles now, and he's doing quite well, but, you know, longing to, to return home someday. Mm. And so he's raising his family in Los Angeles. And, and uh, you know, I've got a couple of grandkids who are in high school right now, and, you know, they keep on, they're singing our national anthem in Hawaii and the national anthem of Hawaii and, and saying, no, we're, we're coming home someday, someday. Right. Well, but, and, and that's, and that's obviously a big challenge when you, when you are dispossessed of your homeland, you know, that it, it does become a real challenge to maintain that cultural integrity. And, and that's why it's so important. And you guys have done a, a marvelous job in, in not only maintaining, but, but reinvigorating the language and so much. I mean, I, over the years that I've been involved in, in talking about Hawaii and, and, and having, you know, folks like yourself on my show and, uh, and, and, and my podcast and stuff, it, you know, we have really, you know, ex exposed a lot of people to, to some of those truths and some of your resiliency. And of course, it, it, it isn't, you know, beyond the, the, the fight, the political and the legal fight over the whole, over the Hawaiian kingdom, you have other battles. So you, you have the fight to, to protect Mauna Kea from uh, overdevelopment yeah. in terms of a, of a 30 meter telescope. What's the status of that fight? If you will, if you could uh, inform well, me. Well, quite, quite interesting. Yes. Um, uh, the state of Hawaii just yesterday 
they passed a new uh, or they passed a bill to create a new administrative body for the Mauna Kea. So basically, they're saying the the, uh, the University of Hawaii screwed up, and we're going to have a new administrative body and comprise of you know X number of people from different parts of the community and things like that. But it's just a, a shell. Yeah. It's just another way to, to uh, it's a shell game. And, and so, you know, we're in the process right now of picking it apart and showing why this whole thing is not changing at all their policy of using our sacred mountain to build telescopes. And, and for those who aren't familiar, Mauna Kea is the tallest mountain in, in Hawaii. It is, it is so tall, and, it's, and because of Hawaii's location, it, it, it ends up you know, almost piercing the veil of much of the lower atmosphere. So it is considered a, a prime site for telescopes and for uh, observatories. And, and the University of Hawaii has already pushed many, um, uh, I think there's like 13 telescopes that are already on top of Mauna Kea. But this project yes. would dwarf all of them. Th this is a 30-meter yes. telescope, a, a, a huge telescope that actually would require the state of Hawaii to, you know, to give them uh, exemptions to many of the state laws and, and that kind of thing to even even entertain building something of this massive size and and uh -huh. it, and by some estimates it's a it's a multi-billion dollar enterprise that that many that several nations have been involved in and you know, and and it is done in a way that seems to ignore Hawaiian culture Hawaiian customs and and the view and the sentiment of uh, of people who who really view Mauna Kea um, and it's hard to say something is a sacred site because I always say what part of our mother is more sacred than another. But when you understand right. the implications of what, you know, and I think anybody and, and I look forward to the day that I can go to Mauna Kea because I understand to stand on that mountain and to be that connected to, you know, what we call our distant relatives, those stars and that kind of stuff is is truly, you know, and I'm not. By by no means do I consider myself a spiritual person, but but from what I understand from everybody that I've ever talked to, they said that is truly an enlightening experience. And you know, so the idea of protecting that 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 sacredness of that site and what it does and means and what it feels like is really just a, an overwhelming. Uh, it's a powerful fight that that, that many people. Um, of all, frankly, of all political stripes, uh, you know, have, have been engaged in. Yes, yes. And so it's been quite a battle. Uh, and, of course, the, the telescope and it's, it's the corporations that are promoting it have won, um, you know, all the permits that they need and they've raised the funds and all that, except for the fact that us standing on the road saying, no, you cannot pass, um, that's that's where the rubber meets the road, you know. So yeah. No, so we, blocked, we blocked it several times. And the last time, the most dramatic was in 2019, you know, when uh, a few hundred people started to say, we're on the road blocking the trucks from going up the mountain to do their construction because they had passed all of their, uh, gotten all their permits and everything else. They were going to go ahead and build it. And, so we blocked it, and um, then after a few days, there were 5,000 people there on the road. And well, and, and the crazy thing out. is, as you say, they got their permits. I think it's it, what's important to, yeah. to realize is that they basically had to get um, 
you know, exemptions from from to to have these permits. It meant that they had to get exemptions from so many regulations to even have them. So it's not like they complied mm-hmm. with existing law uh, or state law. It's not like they complied mm-hmm. with environmental, you know, some of the environmental concerns. They just simply got exemptions from them. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I think it's I think it's important to to say that right out because you know it's and I know when you're talking about a legal fight you know once they have their papers in hand you know however doctored or fraudulent or you know or amended they are and how regardless of how many re, you know um, exemptions they've gotten look we face this in in our fights here over you know and even though we're you know we are in favor of things like sustainable energy when we see these massive wind or solar projects that that oh, you know are being you know placed on on our lands um and that alter or change what the lands can even be used for and re- and we realize that these mega you know corporations these energy corporations that you know need to build these massive facilities so they can reach critical mass the first thing they do is try to bypass all of the local laws, not just native laws, but but town laws, county laws, state laws, any number of things. And they find, you know, willing, you know, cohorts in the political system to, to get those exemptions. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. It, and anyway, so so what's going on in Mount Akea is that the battle is still going, but we've been winning. The thing is, it would have been built 10, 15 years ago right. had we not been blocking it in the courts and all that. And and it's gotten to the point where after this most recent confrontation that started in 2019, you know, basically two, uh, two or three of the countries started to get cold feet and say, say we don't want to put monies into something that's going to so offend the local people, you know, and, and, and may never be built. Yeah. You know? So... So the, their, their funding is very iffy, yeah. you know. Um, I mean, in other words, even even if they got it approved again and, and moved forward, um, we don't know if they can get the funds. And, and we'll still be there, and we'll still block it. Well, and, so, and, and, and the thing is that that our nonviolent resistance, our, our, our direct resistance— it, it, it most of the time we have we've a twofold approach to this thing one is to raise awareness about the um the, you know the lack of cultural sensitivity and all that stuff i mean and we try to make it clear that you are violating you know um the land where you're violating the people of the land and so but that so that's one argument the other argument is to is to raise doubt about its viability its financial viability and you and that's exactly what the folks there have done whether it was their intent or not, but by by demonstrating both the the solidarity to resist this thing culturally, but also raising the specter of whether you know this money is ever going to you know really result in in the product. And so whether we're fighting a pipeline or a solar you know array or whatever else, mm-hmm. we've got to raise not only the the cultural issue, but whether you know whether you're ever going to successfully build this thing because of our resistance and you know so that's kind of the, yeah. the implied or loaded threat that we have to have out there that yeah we're going to fight this forever so yeah 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 and and we have the time <laughs> well and, and yeah again time is on our side because most of these yeah. projects they they are really geared towards having some sort of profitability. I realize science and research is a little exactly. different, but they have a return on investment. And it, and if you start altering yeah. that window, our time is on our yeah. fa- on our side. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So, so I see it as as I'm not I'm not worried about it. We have to be vigilant. We have to do what we can, and not you know let it slide. But I I, I don't think it's going to ever be built, and oh. and not because we were opposed to science. Exactly. Because of they never asked us for one thing, and secondly, if they did ask us, we would have said no. Yeah, yeah, no. And and look, you know, if somebody wants to find another place, then by all means, if you can find a willing host for such a thing. But if you have an unwilling host, that should be that should really be the first requirement, I would think. Right. (laughs) And and so so the idea was they're going to switch it to um, I can't remember which islands they were in the in the in the uh, Atlantic. Okay. Um, Because they had almost as an ideal place. Mm-hmm. But they said no. <laughs> and, and, and so, and, but actually, if we stall this longer, there are actually two telescope projects in, in the Andes being built. Right. Uh, they've already started. And, and those would be the same or even larger than the 30-meter telescope they're proposing for Mauna Kea. Quite, well, not quite as ideal a position, but is just as big a place, and so, so if we stall this uh, Mauna Kea longer, then obviously you know the the other um, telescopes that come online, and we'll take take the business away. Right, right. To, to South America, so yeah. So again, we're not worried about that, or not so much. Not worried. We, we are. You've you've got confidence in that fight, and 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 I and I yeah, think it's remarkable yeah. that you guys have uh, been so successful. I got to tell you, you know, when I've seen, you know, especially in 2019, um, I had sent a bunch of uh, what what some people call the warrior flag, but it's our unity flag out there, and 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 it was always I always felt so good to see the Ganaka Maoli flag flying right alongside our unity flags, uh, and and uh-huh. and I had a bunch of people say, "Did you did you see that they had you know our red flag there?" I said, "Yep, my I, I sent a dozen of them." <laughs> <laughs> so but no i mean uh, and you know so that kind of solidarity is is really important and you know and yeah you know and well, i know course, yeah we were there at standing rock you know mm-hmm. and, uh, and more solidarity sure just, sure yeah 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 and and uh in fact the other a uh, couple months ago i was with um chase iron eyes mm-hmm. in la you know the the lawyer for yeah standing right rock. right and, yeah so well you know we and were, uh, there and look yeah. Oftentimes, there there are some distinctions in in our, in our fights, and, you know. And I say this the same thing yeah. with you know with the civil rights movement and, and that kind of stuff, and and even you know Black Lives Matter. Look, I can have a lot of solidarity with pe- with people who are suffering oppression, but at some point, you know, one of the things that that I have to remind people here in is that we as Native people, we're not fighting for equality. We're fighting for our distinction. Right. You know, and, and it's not necessarily yeah. distinction isn't the opposite of equality. We're not asking to be a lesser or a greater people. We're just saying we're right. not you. And you know, so that distinction, that autonomy, that sovereignty is something that we're yeah. fighting for. And it, but it doesn't mean that I that I don't think that, you know, whether it's the LGTB community or whether it's, you know, uh, you know, people who are persecuted because of religious beliefs or or the color of their skin. Look, there's plenty of solidarity that we have. I think much of what what you guys are fighting for is uh, is similar to what we're fighting for, but you guys do have different arguments because of the way. And frankly, you know the the the, the seizure of, of of Hawaii 
you know, what makes it so distinct is that so many, so much of the international community recognized the independence and sovereignty of, of, of the Hawaiian kingdom prior to the United States doing mm-hmm. what it did. And so, you know, and I hate to say that it, that it's, it's a stronger argument because of what others, how others viewed you, but, but the fact of the matter is it does, that does strengthen, you know, many native, na- many nations never really understood our autonomy as indigenous people of the continent and so they never right. framed it the same way but but you guys had had a, had reached a a level of diplomacy international diplomacy that we never had and that i think puts you uh, puts you in a in a good spot today we we actually um became compliant to what was later called the um oh what's that uh oh I forgot. I lost my train of thought. Actually, the, the, the standard for sovereign states. Yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, there's a certain irony that you guys celebrate an Independence Day that really has nothing to do with your independence, but really the recognition by other nations, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so that was a specific date and time when the international community fully embraced your your independence and your sovereignty. Yes. Yes. So and yeah. treated us as an equal to them. And at that point, we actually set out to help to level the playing field even better for other people. Sure. So we actually assisted China and Japan to to, uh, to get treaties with these other countries on an equal footing, because prior to that, there were unequal treaties. Right, right. You know, and, and and that and a lot so, that a lot of that was caused primarily by the cultural um, differences and sure. you know and, and again looking down at a people that not only look different than you but who have you know different cultural and you know cultural beliefs and 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 that's really where you know manifest destiny the whole white man's burden thing and all of that stuff comes from it, it really mm-hmm. comes from a little you know, it really it, uh, everybody hates it when we say use the word racism but but it's true I mean if you look at much of what native people, indigenous people of, of all over the world have experienced, especially at the hands of Europeans, it was based on a belief that they were racially superior. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well Leon, I want to tell you, I, I, it is really good to catch up. We need to do it again soon. I mean, I know there's, I, I still have other questions, uh, but we'll we'll get to them eventually. And I want to thank you once again for joining okay. me. Everybody, this Leon Sue from the Hawaiian Kingdom, a good friend and a really devoted activist. Hey, it's red shirt and red dress day, by the way. So I want to remind people to pay special note to missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, LGTB. And I want to thank again my guest, Leon Sue, for joining me. It's been it's been a great pleasure. Aloha, everybody. All right. Aloha. Yahweh.